If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, 988 provides 24-7 compassionate support and connection to trained counselors. When you call, text, or chat 988, you'll be quickly connected to trained counselors who will listen to your concerns, provide support, and connect you to additional resources if needed. There is hope. The Lifeline works. You are not alone. For 24-7 support, just call, text, or chat 988. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees, including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union, insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. This time on the Hill, we are joined by our guest. Benam Bentalbu is with the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, and he is an expert on Iran, Iraq, and the Persian Gulf. We thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, one of the reasons we, we wanted to have you in is because we are in a period of time right now of great unrest in the Middle East. Uh, there is a carrier strike group, the USS Abraham Lincoln, that is in that part of the world. Uh, tensions have been escalating again between the United States and with Iran. So the question is, what do we know about the concerns U.S. officials have now about what Iran is doing in Iraq. Sure. Well, Iraq is Iran's next-door neighbor. Uh, Iran has long intervened in the politics, economy, and even national security debates of that country, uh, especially since the eight-year Iran-Iraq war ended in 1988. Um, America is concerned about Iran's attempt to create this uh, Shia Liberation Army. It's a constellation of uh, Iran-backed militias that um, Iran can basically make into a Trojan horse in Iraq by integrating it into the Iraqi state, but also deploy across the entire region. So not just in Iraq, but in Syria and Lebanon, and perhaps even if there's a new conflict zone in the Middle East, Iran could take this uh, multinational force that's beholden to it and deploy it elsewhere. And Iraq really is the incubation uh, uh, ground for this uh, militia threat because Iran used Lebanese Hezbollah to train what became these militias during the Iraq war when the U.S. occupied that country until 2011. So there's a lot to be concerned about, but in short, it's the proliferation of men, money, and munitions to conflict zones in the Middle East. This shouldn't come as a surprise to people though, that Iran is doing this. I mean, they have been meddling in areas where the United States has interest for some time now, haven't they? That's right. It shouldn't be a surprise because the Iranian government, but particularly the Islamic Republic of Iran, doesn't function like a normal government. I think this is something U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said uh, quite well. Um, Iran has revisionist intentions in the Middle East. It doesn't want to kind of keep the balance. It wants to turn over the balance, and the way historically it's done that is by kind of drawing a chasm between the street and the state in the Arab world, and by supporting elements of the street, particularly very radical elements, against the state in an attempt to export its own ideology and its own revolution. 
Um, but the problem now, of course, is that the U.S. is uh, one year into its quote-unquote max pressure campaign, which is the restoration of economic sanctions on Iran since we left the nuclear deal last May. And for the first year of that campaign, Iran was absorbing the pressure, thinking it would wait out the Trump administration. But the pressure was so great, particularly with a series of historical first moves last month in April, that Iran is looking for ways to respond. So it's doing what it's always doing in the Middle East, but now it wants to dial up those activities to a alleged 11, if you will. So Iran and Iraq in 1980 fight a bloody war that kills untold number of people on both sides. Iran's goal back then was to get rid of Saddam Hussein, get rid of his Ba'athist government. They fight essentially to a draw in that war in 1980. But then 30 years later, 9-11 happens. The Iraq war begins. The United States goes into Iraq, removes Saddam Hussein, removes the Ba'athist party. Iran finally gets what it had wanted from 30 years earlier, but now it has happened at the hands of Iran's sworn enemy, the United States. So this creates a bit of a vacuum of power in e Iraq. What are the Iranians' ultimate goal here? Do they want to set up a Iraq that is a puppet of themselves? Do they want to set up an Iraq that is against the United States ideologically? What, what is their end game in Iraq? You know, I think that entire swath of history you laid out is crucial for most Americans to understand because Iran has been consistent in its approach to Iraq. Yes, Saddam Hussein was the one who invaded Iran in 1980, and for the first two years of that conflict, the war was very defensive for Iran, a, a patriotic effort to expel Iraqi forces. But for the other six years of the conflict, uh, it was a revolutionary conflict for Iran. Iranian officials continue to talk about that war in their headlines and in their media, um, likening it to World War III, if you will. So it's had that kind of impact on Iranian society, but most importantly, Iran's government and security policy. And with respect to what Iran wants in Iraq, it simply wants Iraq to never again pose that kind of threat. And never again is that operating moment, uh, operating term, actually, for Iran. So it's going to intervene in, in that country. It wants to have Baghdad be reliant on Tehran. It wants to make sure the country is territorially intact, but weak at the center and able to be punctuated through a series of Iranian clerical networks to make the holy city of Qom in Iran rival and beat the holy city of Najaf in Iraq. Mm -hmm. It wants to make sure that Iranian small and medium business enterprises can take over uh, southern Iraq's small and medium business enterprises so that Iranian goods and Iranian money uh, and Iranian uh, manufactured items are sold in Iraq. It wants to make sure that uh, Iraq can't be a staging ground for any kind of military activity against Iran, be it from the U.S., be it from another Arab country, or be it even from the Kurds. So Iran wants a weak Iraq as part of its larger attempt to revise the balance of power in the Middle East. And the irony is because they didn't want the United States at their doorstep in Iraq. And as the United States under the Obama administration was doing what it could to pull the United States out of Iraq... Here comes Iran doing things that reinserts the United States, that puts us right back on their, on their doorstep. There's a, there's a bit of a catch-22 with what goes on here, that they do these things that are provocative, and they get 
in response the very thing that they don't want. They don't seem to learn this lesson. That's right. You know, uh, Iran sometimes overlearns lessons from history and then sometimes misses those lessons altogether. Um, when you look at what Iran was doing in Iraq post-2010, really flaming up the sectarian issue, really pushing around the central government, really making sure they evict America and make it look like Iran and Iran's constellation of militias evicted America, that set the ground for ISIS because then the Sunni community had no other alternative. They were cornered by these Sunni extremists and they turned to them because they were stuck between Qasem Soleimani, the commander of Iran's Quds Force, who leads these foreign extraterritorial operations for Iran, who is Shia, or Sunni radical uh, jihadist ISIS. And they turned to that radical jihadist alternative, which in which required America to come in back to Iraq, even under the Obama administration, in a military sense, to push back on ISIS. So that brought America back to the region. Iran's proliferation of weapons, and we talked about the men, money, munitions, that brings America back to the region. The carrier uh, strike group is now back in the region. Patriot missile defenses are now back in the region. Hopefully, these redeployments get Iran to back down. The ultimate goal here is not to start war, but to stem war, to make sure Iran knows it cannot win any kind of escalation spiral. And it's important to note that even with, you know, it's a little more than sable rattling, but with all of these steps being taken, leaders on both sides have said that they don't want a war. You know, the president this past week was asked about this, and he says, well, I certainly hope not. Um, Iran has said things to those effect as, as well. Um, but it's also important to know who we're dealing with. Who is running Iran right now? It is, is it the political leadership or is it the Muslim Islamic clerical religious leaders? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because even though Iran does have a president, even though Iran does have a parliament, even though Iran does have a formal national military, it has a series of parallel institutions that check the prerogatives of its quote-unquote elected. And we know elections in Iran are, are not free. They're more like selections. They're about elite competition, not really about mass mobilization and representation. Um, so there's a series of unelected institutions that supervise those quote-unquote elected or selected institutions. And there is a supreme leader in Iran and he is the quote-unquote guardian of the Islamic Revolution. It's part of this revolutionary revisionist uh, Shiite ideology, and it is now this man named Sayyid Ali Khamenei. He is the successor to Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. That man is the founding father of the Islamic Republic of Iran. He's the one that led the revolution against the U.S.-backed Shah. Um, and Iran has only had two supreme leaders in its history. The Islamic Republic is only 40 years old. If you talk to a lot of Iranians inside and outside the country, they hope it's not around for too much longer. But it's had these two supreme leaders, these two ayatollahs, uh, at the helm, 1980 to 1989 and 1989 to present. And Ayatollah Khamenei uh, controls the entire foreign and security policy portfolio, even though Iran does have a, form a formal foreign ministry, even though Iran does have a president. So these other institutions like uh, the foreign ministry, who at the helm is Mohammad Javad Zarif, who has a PhD from American University and who speaks English well, they are designed to deal in the world of style and not substance. So what they do is, as opposed to getting Iran to change its behavior, they present this new style to get the world to change its own approach to Iran without Iran having to make any concessions. And that's the value added here for some of this uh, window dressing. because so there the still political is political leadership is more in place to 
present that face to the world absolutely. and it's the religious leaders that are actually running things? Absolutely. It's the religious leaders, but also this cadre of uh, military elites now in the country. Um, we cannot forget it's not just men in turbans that matter. It's men in uniforms that matter in Iran. And that uh, that paradigm will continue to matter because they both rely on each other to stay in power. You mentioned uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, it is 2019 right now. This November will be the 40th anniversary of the U.S. hostages being taken at the former U.S. Embassy in uh, Tehran. Um, what can we expect this fall on that anniversary from Iran in terms of reframing what was an illegal invasion of the U.S. Embassy and the taking of those hostages, which go against all diplomatic rules, all diplomatic norms of violation of international law in its most blatant, basic form, perhaps, that has ever been. Well, that act, the storming of the embassy, the taking of American hostages, continues to color U.S.-Iran relations. Um, it's why there's mistrust on the American side, but it also gets to the heart of how this regime sees America. It fundamentally does not trust America either. And every year on the anniversary, the 13th of Aban on the Iranian calendar, the November, the 4th of November on our calendar, Iran commemorates it. The regime elites commemorate it. Uh, university students who are affiliated with hardline organizations. It's a holiday then, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Commemorate it. That's right. It's a yeah. holiday. And they have big protests and big rallies, and they continue to chant the kind of viscerally anti-American slogans that have made and sustained this regime as a pariah for the past 40 years. So but 40 years ago is a long time. It's a very long time. But sometimes... When, when you look at Iran now and you deal with somebody who's maybe 25, 30 years old, does that still have impact? Does that still have hold over them? This idea that America is the, is the great Satan and you know these chants of death to America that you know we see done for the television cameras now for all of these years is is that still real or are they playing a role there is that are they reciting a line that they've been taught just just two things there the first is to kind of pick up where we left off on november 4th mm -hmm. of course uh there was a few days after november 4th in 1979 khomeini said this line uh, america can't do a damn thing so you talk about 40 years later the lessons of history and all this distance um Iranian leaders continue to believe that America can't do a damn thing, and that's why they're willing to gamble so much in the Middle East. That's why a country with a very weak GDP is so willing to take on a country like ours with a very strong GDP. A country that is conventionally weak like them is so willing to test the resolve of a country like ours. And this risk-reward calculus is only going to grow if the administration doesn't stem um, some of these bad lessons that have been kind of ingrained in the Iranians' uh, political psyche since 1979. Now, to the younger generation question, I think that is crucial because there is a youth bulge in Iran just like there is across the Middle East. Um, but unlike most of the Middle East, I think just observationally, not empirically, there are much more stronger pro-American sentiments in Iran, even though the government of Iran is decidedly anti-American. See, that's surprising because they've been brought up in a world where we in the United States, you know, are evil. They're taught we are the great Satan, their words. That's what they call us. That's right. And so, you know, where, where do, is, is this organic? Where does this come from if there is this favorability amongst some young Iranians towards the United States? Is, is the truth of our being seeping in there somehow? 
I think against it, what this ideology that the Iranians have been pushing? It, it's all of the above, but it's all—it's just a, it's a couple of factors. The first, of course, is that there's always been a hardcore group of people in Iran that support the regime, that do mean it when they say death to America. It's not just the elites. It's not just mm-hmm. uh, military and cl- uh, military elites, clerical elites. It's probably back of the envelope calculation, 20 to 30 percent of the population. Very, very rough estimate. Then there's a lot of politically apathetic people, but then there's a lot of people who are disenfranchised, who see the Islamic Revolution, who see the Islamic Republic of Iran failing to deliver, and worse, living under a repressive authoritarian society, have come to learn that that which the Islamic Republic says is bad is often good, and that which the Islamic Republic wants to make conflict with is something that instead you should covet. And that's why I think that there's this irony that even though the government is anti-American, the population is much more pro-American and much more inclined, I think, if you have a representative uh, government in Iran one day, that Iran's foreign and security policy would look fundamentally different. We saw during the Obama administration, during one of his uh, last elections, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, widespread rampant fraud in his election, Iranians took to the streets in protests. And the response from the White House at that time sort of circled around a stern finger wag. Don't do this. Uh, The world is watching. And then nothing really ever was followed up on Iran. And the lesson was taught at that point for the rest of the Obama administration that this White House was not seriously going to challenge Iran. In fact, it then entered into negotiations which resulted in the Iranian nuclear deal. Fast forward down to the Trump administration. Trump administration is pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal. It is ratcheting up maximum pressure on Iran. Which is the right course? The Obama way or the Trump way? I definitely think the current way uh, that the administration has chosen is the right approach, but it must be wielded well. You know, pressure has to serve a larger purpose. It has to not just make it harder for Iran to engage in repression at home and aggression abroad. It has to deliver Iran back to the negotiating table because we've only seen very, very few instances in the history of the Islamic Republic when it's willing to reconsider something and do a 180. And it's only under these series of maximum pressure, maximum, when the regime is backed into the corner, when it realizes that there is no way out but through, that it can course correct. And if you're asking me which president presents that option to Iran, that there is no way out but through, it definitely would be this administration. Again, it simply has to be wielded well, because Iran has all these incentives right now um, to kind of play for time. It knows that max pressure, for instance, uh, is a partisan strategy. It knows that there are elections in the U.S. in 2020. Our domestic politics, I'm sure as you know better than most, uh, are on full public display. And there are many on the Democratic side of the aisle, and this is not a partisan observation, but it is something that the DNC actually wants. There are many who want to return to the Iran nuclear deal, and somewhat blindly. And a return to the nuclear deal, unamended, unimproved, unfixed, if you will, would be a gift to the Ayatollahs, make no mistake. Removing all the sanctions and keeping the deal, the fatally flawed deal, intact as is, would be a gift to them. And that's what they want. And it occurs to me as you're talking that it almost sounds like we're talking about a child with two parents, one who is stern and one who is laissez-faire. And that child is going to be more likely to not challenge the stern parent than they would be the parent who kind of just lets things roll off their back. Is, Is that a fair interpretation that in order 
to constructively engage Iran, you actually have to be tough on Iran. Otherwise, they don't respect you. They will not feel that you are of substance and that you have to be dealt with in a way that is not going to create those situations that you don't want to see if you're wrong. That's right. And there, there's two metaphors that come to mind here. One is the, the parent one that you mentioned. I want to flesh that out a bit. Look at the way the U.S. dealt with the Soviet Union from 1945 until 89, 90. It had hawks in the White House. It mm-hmm. had doves in the White House. But I think the oscillation of our foreign and security policy, we broadly had this containment policy. Then we switched it up a little bit, detente, engagement, rollback. Um, these oscillations actually strengthened in the long run our foreign policy towards the Soviet Union because like a rock which expands and contracts under cold and hot weather, the Soviet Union had to get adjusted to these different approaches and ultimately it collapsed, quote unquote, uh, on, its, on itself. This is, I think, a useful approach to Iran, but just it's worth noting that Iran isn't the Soviet Union in terms of military or economic mm-hmm. might, that a changing approach to the Islamic Republic, one that capitalizes on, okay, well, I'm a hawk, I'm following a dove, or I'm a dove, I'm following a hawk, that can get Iranian leaders mm-hmm. to, to fight with one arm behind their back. That can make them fight flat-footed. That can make them appear confused. And I think if you do this uh, well enough, if you play the good cop, bad cop card uh, well enough, as the U.S., I think, has the capability to do, both between the Congress and the White House and both between Democratic and Republican administrations, Iran could really be in a bind. Because the goal is to to actually increase the pressure on them, but it has to be done smartly and succinctly. And the reason I'm critical of the Obama approach is because it misses, it denudes Iran of agency. You know, the men leading Iran today, a lot of them come from merchant backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there's anything you learn in any bazaar in the Middle East, not just Iran, but anywhere really, is that you don't want to express your interest in something immediately. And I think one of the mistakes of the Obama administration is that it was very earnest and very eager for a diplomatic accord with Iran and a nuclear deal with Iran. And once Iranian leaders realized it, they realized they could charge you any price for it. And that's why we got at the fatally flawed nuclear deal. That's the advice I would give the Trump administration, that as they're talking about wanting Iran to telephone them, as they're trying to give the Swiss the White House phone number to pass on to Iran, don't appear too eager. Don't let uh, your desire for diplomacy undercut the efficacy of your sanctions, because there is a real substance to this strategy here. Iran will come because history says that when the pressure mounts, they will make the call, that they will make the course correction. You simply have to let the pressure mount and not swerve in the face of the first threat. And I guess you also have to keep that mentality when you do get to the point where you are uh, negotiating with them in some way that you sustain that maximum pressure at the negotiating table as well, too. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Because mm-hmm. I think we had the right approach, even under the Obama administration, to use the sanctions to get Iran to come to the table. I have immense respect for the U.S. State Department officials who negotiated the deal, but I think that the way in which it was negotiated was a mistake, and Iran bested the U.S. at the negotiating table, even though it entered those negotiations with a fundamentally weaker hand. And I think that's just a reality. Fascinating stuff. Indeed. We thank you. Um, it's amazing that we're still talking about Iran in this context 40 years now after the uh, fall of the U.S. Embassy. But uh, here we are. Ben, ben Tablu is a uh, member of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, and he's been kind enough to uh, join us on the Hill podcast uh, for this week. My pleasure. Ben, we thank you so much. That thank you for having me. We'll have you back. It'd be Especially great. Especially this November, because we're going to want oh, to yes. talk about uh, that the anniversary as it arrives. All right, and that'll do it for this time. You've been listening to the On the Hill podcast. 
from the studios of Fox 5 here in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We thank you for joining us this time. We'll see you next time on The Hill. Encuentren de Home Depot nuestros mejores ahorros de temporada en almacenaje seleccionado hecho para ti. Obtén cajas resistentes HDX para proteger tus herramientas o almacenar tu equipo deportivo con su tapa reforzada con cierres y un diseño apilable para conservar tus decoraciones navideñas, como series de luces y estos muchachos. Ahorra más con hasta 25% menos en almacenaje seleccionado por Internet en The Home Depot. Haces más, logras más.